This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. A variety of eating disorders can occur in adults. Anorexia nervosa and bulimia are two of the more common disorders, and they're associated with multiple potential health complications, including an increased risk of death. Some studies report that up to 20% of those with anorexia can die from this condition. Would you recognize an eating disorder in the patients you see? Which questions should you ask to confirm a diagnosis and what clues should you look for? Today's topic is adult eating disorders and these are some of the questions we'll ask our guest, Dr. Leslie Sim, a psychologist at the Mayo Clinic and an expert in eating disorders. Leslie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start by asking you to tell us what qualifies as an eating disorder. So what qualifies as an eating disorder is a great question because we know it's, it's a range of different conditions. I think what they all have in common are um, abnormal or aberrant eating behaviors and also some distorted uh, thoughts about weight, shape, and food. And there's a number of different eating disorders. We think about anorexia um, when we think of eating disorders, although that is kind of one of the most rare eating disorders. So anorexia is really the hallmark would be profound fear of weight gain. And that seems to really drive restrictive eating patterns and low weight. Um, so these patients can be underweight. But it's also important to recognize that eating disorders can come in all shapes and sizes. So um, even someone with anorexia may not appear cachectic or emaciated. They may have started at a higher weight and then lost a significant portion of their weight and are experiencing health complications. Then we also have bulimia nervosa, which is characterized by episodes of binge eating, which really involve uh, experiencing a loss of control over one's eating and eating a very large amount of food in a discrete period of time, and then followed by some kind of compensatory behavior to try to compensate for the calories they consume. So vomiting, laxative abuse, but also even just restricting their intake for the next day. Maybe they don't eat the next day because they are feeling bad about the calories they consumed. Or excessive exercise, going to the gym for five hours can be a purging behavior. And then binge eating disorder is really just episodes of binge eating without the compensatory behaviors. So does binge eating and bulimia go together? Yes. So uh, with bulimia, people engage in episodes of binge eating. And then binge eating disorder, there's episodes of binge eating without any purging behaviors. So they're very similar. I think most of us have heard of anorexia and bulimia, but there are other types of eating disorders. Is that right? Yeah. So an eating disorder that was recently added to our diagnostic manual, the DSM-5, is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. And this is an eating disorder that is commonly seen in medical conditions. It's really where people engage in severe restrictive eating, but it's not at all to try to control their weight or shape. It's really motivated by 
kind of a fear of the aversive consequences of eating. So people with medical conditions might not feel well. They may not, maybe if they eat, they vomit or they don't have an appetite. And this can really drive a lot of restrictive eating and create some significant health problems. So we're well, seeing it in a lot of GI settings and other kind of medical settings. Okay. I didn't know a lot about eating disorders until I started uh, reviewing the literature on this in preparation for this podcast, but I was amazed at the number of health complications yeah. that can occur. Can you review some of those for our listeners? Sure. So we know that eating disorders can affect every organ system. So that they're very, the health complications are broad and pervasive. And you can just think about any of the health complications of restrictive eating or, you know, consistent vomiting. So we see electrolyte imbalances, we see uh, cardiovascular complications, arrhythmias, um, also uh, consequences to bone health. So osteoporosis, osteopenia, menstrual irregularities, really the list goes on. So it's, they're pretty extensive. They really are. Who's most likely to get an eating disorder? Are there risk factors for this? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. We used to think that eating disorders were pretty sociocultural in origin. So things like, you know, the media, the thin body ideal, those kinds of things. But now we're really understanding that they have strong genetic contributions. And there might be some specific heritable personality traits that might predispose somebody to getting an eating disorder. What we also see is dieting and restrictive eating. So I don't think we would really have eating disorders if we didn't have, you know, restrictive eating or dieting. There seems to be something that's associated with starvation or semi-starvation that changes the brain and changes the neurobiology. And it actually precipitates more of those cognitive symptoms of an eating disorder, that fear of weight gain, body image distortion, those kinds of things. So as in many other conditions, maybe a combination of genetics was give you the predisposition and then the environment or the social implications of, uh, of the condition as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. They're pretty complex and very biopsychosocial in nature. Are those who have eating disorders more likely to have other psychological problems? Absolutely. So what we know is anxiety disorders tend to precede the development of an eating disorder. They tend to be a risk factor. And there might be uh, something about restrictive eating that tends to suppress anxiety, which make people engage in the behavior, or perhaps binge eating might be a way to regulate negative emotions. We also see, though, depression is quite common and comorbid with eating disorders. And what we often see is depression tends to be a consequence of restrictive eating. So imagine um, if you are too busy today clinically and you, and you skip lunch, how you might be feeling pretty, pretty irritable when you get home. Um, imagine if that's going on day after day and what that would do to, to mood regulation. So we usually see depression co-occurring primarily as a consequence of some of these behaviors yeah, and restrictive eating. Do adults with eating disorders have clues from their childhood or actually eating disorders from their childhood that predicts that they're going to have problems later? Yeah. So um, we often see that 
eating disorders most commonly begin during adolescence with the average age being modal age being about age 14. So they generally begin during adolescence at some point, but we see them across the lifespan. And it's common that maybe someone who seems to develop an eating disorder, say postpartum or um, maybe even in later years, it's possible that that might be an eating disorder that has returned from development at an earlier stage. Are there triggers as we go through life that uh, may bring on an eating disorder or trigger one? So any major stressor or transition, life transition can be uh, something that might precipitate an eating disorder. But generally, we, I really have to highlight how dieting, restrictive eating, and any kind of weight loss. So for example, someone who develops abdominal pain and loses 20 pounds, how that in and of itself, that weight loss can be a catalyst for the development of an eating disorder. So sometimes we might see it in a, in, in a cancer patient who ends up losing some weight and how that changes the brain and may even people can develop some reinforcement for their weight loss. Um, they might get positive comments from others saying, wow, you look really good. And what are you doing? And meanwhile, the person hasn't been eating because they've been sick. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about the clinical presentation of this, because I suspect most patients don't come directly to you. They probably come to us as primary care providers, and we need to be able to recognize them. So do patients with eating disorders realize they have them? And do they typically seek help for it? Not all the time. So some people don't recognize that they have an eating disorder, um, particularly with anorexia nervosa. There seems to be a lack of understanding about the seriousness of the low weight. So for my um, patients, I will oftentimes see them come in on stretchers. And in their mind, they don't understand what the big deal is and why everyone's really concerned. They think everyone is overreacting. So there seems to be something that interferes with their ability to see how, how serious the problem is. We also know that eating disorders uh, occur in all genders, all races and ethnicities, um, and yet it's not been um, well described outside of the kind of stereotype of this, you know, the white female. And so people may not see themselves in an eating disorder, especially men. They may say, you know, I don't have an eating disorder. That's something that women have. Um, so they are less likely to be identified by primary care providers and also maybe even acknowledged by themselves. So you mentioned males and females with eating disorders. And from what I understand, it's more common in females. But what is the difference in how they present males versus females? It really depends on the eating disorder. With anorexia, it's about 90% female, whereas with binge eating disorder, it seems to be a little bit more um, equally distributed between males and females. We know that men are definitely vulnerable to developing eating disorders. They get eating disorders. They're not as well recognized, however and they're less likely to seek help. Well, what should we look for in a patient who comes into our office and either doesn't recognize that they have an eating disorder or 
doesn't seek help for it. Are there some red flags that should alert us that this might be an issue? Anytime you see a lot of weight fluctuations or weight changes, it is definitely something you need to look into. And weight changes up or down can be a red flag or lots of fluctuations in general. Nowadays, we're seeing people who seem to have an excessive preoccupation with healthy eating. We might think as healthcare providers that that's a wonderful thing, that people are really focused on healthful eating, but sometimes it's very rigid focus on healthful eating, and it can often undermine health, where people are not really getting a variety of foods or they're afraid of certain kinds of foods in their diet, and it can really get in the way of their health. If you're seeing things like excessive exercise, a question you can ask is, what did you eat yesterday? And if people are skipping meals, that can be a red flag. And then, of course, focusing on physical sequelae of restrictive eating, such as menstrual irregularities, any kind of issues with osteoporosis or osteopenia, bradycardia, orthostatic changes, fatigue, cold intolerance can often be a red flag that should provoke some suspicion. So what should we do if we have a patient in our office and we suspect they have an eating disorder? What, what do we do next? I think a big thing is to be very compassionate. Eating disorders are challenging because there's a lot of shame around having an eating disorder and stigma. There's a lot of myths and misunderstandings, such as people assuming that this is behavior that they can control or they're choosing to engage in. So I think, you know, approaching it with compassion and the desire to help the person, you know, get the right help. I also think offering people follow-up because sometimes we think our job is just to identify and refer, but the primary care provider has a, a very important role in being able to assess medical stability, provide support with regard to evaluating some of the symptoms and treating some of the symptoms as well. And then, of course, helping the person find a good referral. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about management. Once the patient has been identified as having an eating disorder, how do you manage them and are you successful? That's a great question. Um, absolutely. Eating disorders are treatable. And I think there is another myth that eating disorders, people will have them forever and never get better. And that is absolutely not true. Um, there are some very good evidence-based treatments for eating disorders. For adult eating disorders, cognitive behavior therapy enhanced is a, an evidence-based treatment for both eating disorder and bulimia nervosa. And then uh, another treatment has some really good evidence behind it called integrative cognitive effective therapy. And that's for bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder. Also this CBT enhanced um, is also an evidence-based treatment for anorexia nervosa. Or I should mention that this is an outpatient treatment, but sometimes patients require more intensive or what we call a higher level of care which might involve a day hospital program where they're getting more intensive therapies and medical management or hospitalizations. Do patients who have been effectively treated suffer relapses? Is that common? Yes, relapses are, are common. We'll see patients who are hospitalized uh, be re readmitted 
um, sometimes multiple times, and it can be up to 40% of patients. That does not mean that we despair. We know that treatment, even if with relapses, can be successful. So when we're following these patients, because they can relapse, um, is there a time period where we should be more vigilant in terms of watching for a relapse? Sure. I think shortly after uh, they have been discharged from a hospital program, after they have concluded treatment, I, I mean, I think t- just to have a little bit more follow-up, but a- relapse can happen at any time. They can happen years later. So it's something I think it's important just to check in on at uh, the healthcare visits. Okay. Very good. I mean, you hear about these uh, celebrities who have eating disorders. I think of like Karen Carpenter. Mm-hmm. and um, Apparently she was under treatment and still died mm-hmm. of is that is that common that yes uh, yeah it's pretty it can absolutely happen when we look at the mortality of eating disorders it is the highest out of any mental health disorder with the exception of opioid overdose you know and a lot of the people end up dying by suicide mm-hmm. and i think that really speaks to the poor quality of life and the effect of this of eating disorders, not just only on physical health, but also just on mental health, emotional well-being. It's a very socially isolating condition. Well, as I was reading about this and discovered the variety of eating disorders, it just makes me wonder how many patients I've missed over my career. Mm. It's, it, uh, it's just such a variety. Yeah, it's really easy to miss. And, and mental health providers miss it all of the time. There's some data, too, that suggests that a lot of the patients with eating disorders come to uh, a mental health care provider for treatment of those comorbid symptoms of depression or anxiety that might be kind of related to the eating disorder. But the mental health professional does not know that the person also has the eating disorder. They just will be treating their depression. And there's no way that that treatment's going to be effective if you're not addressing the eating problems. Sure. Yeah. Let's conclude by asking you to give us maybe two or three take-home points regarding adult eating disorders. I think some take-home points would be suspect an eating disorder in people of all shapes and sizes. So it's uh, not simply the province of underweight white females. It uh, occurs you know, across gender, across ethnicity and race, as well as diverse body types and shapes. So another important point to consider is that um, treatment is effective. So it's important to also identify eating disorders early in the course of the condition so that they can be more effectively treated. Well, we've been discussing adult eating disorders with Dr. Leslie Sim, a psychologist in the Department of Psychiatry and Psychology at the Mayo Clinic. Leslie, thank you for sharing your expertise with us. This is truly a fascinating topic. It's my pleasure. Thank you. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.